Thank you. It is uh, so nice to be here. It's been a little while. It's nice because it, I think I've been here. It was like two. Marissa, how long has it been? Two, three years. That feels like a long time. How lucky I am that it, three years away feels like a long time. Um, yeah, the first time I was here was like 2014. In the wind. It was so cold. It was so cold. And God, we had so much fun. Got so much work done. I wrote like almost a whole book, this really terrible book that's now like nowhere. <laughs> but it was really important. It was so good. Um, yeah, so I'm going to read. Um, oh, yeah. I also want to say, too, about the cover of this book, which Arista did. Um, you know, so the first book that I published is called Against Which. I was writing... I was driving the woman who was the executive director of Cave Canem, which is the one of the African American Poetry Workshop. Um, was driving her. We were both driving up to a reading up in Connecticut, like I don't know, a month or two after the book came out. And she was like, "Oh, happy about your book! Congratulations! Blah blah blah." Um, I I love her, by the way. I want you to know. <laughs> <laughs> and then she was like, "But what's up with the cover? It's horrible." <laughs> <laughs> and I was like, well, that's my painting. You know. <laughs> so that was the first one. And then, you know, so that was like a fun thing. Every time we talk together, I get to make, I get to bring that up. And then my mother was like, uh, when this book came out, she was like, wow, this cover is so much better than your other two covers. <laughs> I did the, uh, the second cover, too. I painted that, too. <laughs> you know. Anyway. But it is, it is fun to like have a cover that you can really brag on, you know, because it's not yours, which I do all the time. Um, anyway, so I'm going to read a couple like poems from this book, Catalog of Unabashed Gratitude. And I'm also going to read from this book I've been working on called The Book of Delights. I just spent a year um, from my birthday, August 1st, um, until my birthday, August 1st, 2016 to 2017. I just decided every single day I would write a short essay about something that delighted me. Um, and it's, it's, a, it's a book. Weird, weird, you can make a book like that. And um, so I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to read some of those. <clears throat> but first, I will read you a couple poems from here, I think. This is called Ode to the Puritan in Me. This feels like a Vermont poem, in a way. There is a Puritan in me, the brim of whose hat is so sharp it could cut your tongue out. With a brow so furrowed, you could plant beets or turnips or something, of course, good for storing. He has not taken a nap since he was two years old because he detests sloth above all. He is maybe the only real person I've ever heard say sloth or detest in a sentence. He reads poetry, the Puritan in me, with an exacto knife in his calloused hand, if not a stick of dynamite. And if the Puritan in me sees two cats making whoopee in the barn, I think not because they get in the way or scare the cows, but more precisely because he thinks it is worthless, the angles of animals fucking freely in the open air, he will blast them to smithereens. I should tell you, the Puritan in me always carries a shotgun. He wants to punish the world, I suppose, because he feels he needs punishing for who knows how many unpunishable things. Like the times as a boy, he'd sneak shirtless between the cows to haul his tongue across the salt lick or how he'd study his dozing granny's instep like it was a map of his county. 
Where the spring nights he'd sneak to the garden behind the sleeping house and strip naked while upon him lathered the small song of the ants rasping their tongues across the peony's sap, making of his body a flower-dappled tree while above him the heavens wheeled and his tongue drowsed slack as a creek on the banks of which, there he is, right now, the Puritan in me, tossing his shotgun into the cattails, taking off his boots and washing his feet in that water. Here's another kind of springy poem. Patience. I got a hang up. This is interesting. Patience. It's like another kind of Puritan poem, actually. <clears throat> call it sloth. Call it sleaze. Call it bummery, if you please. I'll call it patience. I'll call it joy. This, my supine congress with the newly yawning grass and beetles chittering in their offices beneath me, as I, nearly drifting to dream, admire this so-called weed, which, if I guarded with my teeth bared my garden of all alien breeds, if I was all knife and axe and made a life of hacking, would not have burst gorgeous forth and beckoning these sort of phallic spires, ringleted by these sort of vaginal blooms, which the new bees, being bees, heed. And yes, it is spring, if you can't tell from the words my mind makes of the world, and everything makes me mildly or more hungry. The worm turning in the, in the leaf mold, the pear blooms howling forth their pungence like a choir of wet-dreamed boys hiking up their skirts. Even the neighbor cats shimmy through the grin in the fence. And the way this bee before me, after whispering in my ear, dips her head into those dainty lips, not exactly like one entering a chapel. And friends, if that wasn't enough, she blooms forth with her forehead dusted pink like she has been licked and so blessed by the kind of God to whom this poem is a prayer. And I'm going to read one more from here. I have flowers. I read at Bennington College last night, and some, some people give me flowers. Look, there's a lilac in there. Lucky? Lucky. This is called Sharing with the Ants. Um, in order for you to catch this um, finest moment of writing I have ever had and will probably ever have, I need to ask you how many of you have ever eaten fresh figs? Okay, so many of you. Okay, so you might catch this, my moment of pride, my singular moment of pride in my writing. Sharing with the ants. A euphemism for some yank and gobble, no doubt, some yummy tumble or other, like monkey spanking or hiding the salami. Of course your mind goes there. Lucy Goose said, you are? Me too. Me too. You have a favorite? Don't lie. I've heard you say them. Tending the hive, eating the melon, how's the tunnel traffic? Whereas a massage therapist would say to my pal when his loneliness dragged him to a carpeted room in an apartment building in Chinatown where the small hands lathered his body, open the door. Naturally sharing with the ants, some entomologic metaphor, the chronic yoke in lovemaking, not only of body to body, but life to death, sharing with the ants. Or the specific act of dragging with the tongue one's sweat-gilded body from the tibia's lookout along the rope bridge of the Achilles, marching across the long plains of the calf and the meticulously unnamed zone behind the knee over the hamstring, and to use your imagination for Christ's sakes. But I will tell you, it is dark there and sweet. 
sharing with the ants. But that's not at all what I'm talking about. <clears throat> I actually mean sharing with the ants, which I did September 21st, a Friday in 2012, when by fluke or whim or prayer, I jostled the crotch-high fig tree whose few fruit had been scooped by our fat friends, the squirrels, but found shriveled and purple into an almost testicular papoose. That's it. That's the moment. <laughs> it's as good as it gets. Thank you. <sighs> into an almost testicular papoose smuggled beneath the fronds of a few leaves one stalwart fruit which I immediately bit in half only to find a small platoon of ants twisting in the meat. And when I spit out my bite another four or five lay sacked out their spindly legs pedaling slow, nothing. One barely looking at me through a half-open eye the way an infant might curled into its mother's breast. And one stumbled dazed through my beard, tickling me as it tumbled head over feet over head over feet back into the bite in my hand. The hooked sabers of their mandibles made soft, kneading the flesh, their claws heavy and slow with fruit, their armor slathered plush as the seeds shone above the sounds of their work like water slapping a pier at night. And not one to disrupt an orgy, I mostly gobbled around their nuzzle and slurp, careful not to chomp a reveler. And nibbling one last thread of flesh, I noticed a dozy ant nibbling the same toward me, its antenna just caressing my face, its pincers slowing at my lips, both of our mouths sugared and shining, both of us twirling beneath the fig's seeds, spinning like a newly discovered galaxy that's been there forever. Okay. I'm going to read you a couple of delights, but here's what I want to do. So I wrote, there's like 102 of them, and um, I'm going to actually ask you for a subject, and I'm, I'm going to guess that I might have a, a delight to, to uh, commune with you. Subject, someone? Huh? Squirrels. <coughs> That's a good one. <laughs> I can get close um, right off the bat. Oh, I can get really close. I can get really close. Um. <laughs> um. Does anyone remember that song uh, by Lisa Loeb, uh, Stay? How did that go? Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> totally. Thank you. Yeah. I know. The glasses are the thing. Oh, my God. I realized, so I wrote this essay, and I was thinking of this song. That, but I wrote the whole essay, and then I was like, oh, but that's not the song I'm actually talking about. Uh, there was another song. Um, hey, yeah, yeah, yeah. Hey, yeah, yeah. I said, hey, what's going on? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Totally. <laughs> yeah. But, you know. Anyway, it's nonfiction. It's called this is called Stay by Lisa Loeb. <laughs> a deliciously corny song just came on that might have once been your favorite, too, just like it was my most sociopathic childhood friends. My friend who, with another pal, snuck into our home while my parents were sleeping upstairs. We were an easy mark. The key was in the mailbox. And rearranged the furniture, the couch facing the wall, 
the chairs stacked up in the dining room, table, and the living room. I, I actually came home from my girlfriends late that night after my buddies had done their stealth interior design work and thought, Mom and, Mom and Dad are officially off their rockers. Then I went to bed. But when my mother woke me up pissed off about the tomfoolery, I immediately suspected these two assholes. We were a legion of pranksters, truth be told. A couple of my besties and dialed up the unsociopathic asshole and told him my mother tripped in the early morning dark because someone had rearranged our furniture in the night as a joke, and she busted out her tooth, a trick I can't take all the credit for. My dad gave me the idea when he was yelling at me, Mom could have knocked her tooth out. <laughs> Why the singular rather than the plural, I will never know. <laughs> Being unsociopathic, he immediately confessed and apologized profusely and almost wept and was so kind as to alert me to the sociopath's involvement. So when I called the sociopath and employed the same mode of entrapment, my mom tripped and busted out a tooth and had to be rushed to the dental hospital. Dental hospital. <laughs> this buddy said, more or less, bummer. <laughs> Which is why the next day when driving with my girlfriend and spotting a fat roadkill possum, I convinced her to pull over so I could toss the thing in the trunk before depositing it on the sociopath's doorstep, where inside, for all I know, he was watching the video. Sweet Lisa Loeb in that big empty loft and those dorky horn-rimmed glasses with the turtle shell rims singing softly along, re-falling in love as she pleads, you said that I was naive and I thought that I was strong. It goes on and on and on. Blah, blah, blah. The bloated possum's empty eyes looking through the door and the game over. <laughs> okay. Another subject. That was fun. That was close. Yeah. B minus. That was a B minus. I'd like to do better. <laughs> Is there another subject you would like to hear? What was it? Okra? Okra. Man. Um, I could probably get close. <laughs> it seems like I should have okra in this book. <laughs> what was it? <laughs> okra, the, the food. Yeah, the food. Um, I can get close. I can get close. I got one that... I wonder if that one... Nah, yeah, that's not, I mean, whatever, you'll have to forgive me, but it's, okay, this is, <laughs> you know, trying. This is called, um, it, what would be the second vegetable if you were to <laughs> do another vegetable? Oh. You people, you people. This is like, I think you're actually trying to fuck me up. <laughs> Here's one. Um, this is, there, there is no okra, though. Okay. This is called Get Thee to the Nutrient Cycle. There's a garden. This morning, I was peeing into an empty rice wine vinegar bottle, which makes, with some olive oil, the vinegar, my very favorite salad dressing. I was peeing into the bottle so that I could discreetly pour it into my watering can to give my garden plants a shot of nitrogen, which the pea has in abundance. It's a fun exercise, the version that involves a penis anyway, which I'm most familiar with, because depending on the receptacle, which I so badly want to call a vessel, it can be a bit of an ordeal. 
For instance, without telling you too much about my anatomy, I can tell you that the vinegar bottle requires something like putting one's eye to a keyhole, except if you do it wrong, you will pee on your hands and the floor. <laughs> I go in and out of collecting my urine for my garden and was reminded of the bounty our bodies produce, AKA our forgotten station in the nutrient cycle. I wonder if this simple forgetting, this collective amnesia, that we are in fact part of the nutrient cycle <clears throat> is the source of our gravest problems. Namely, that we are in the long process of making our planet uninhabitable to many species, including ourselves. Upon running into my friend Jack on 4th Street, Jack, along with a bevy of other skills, is a superb dumpster diver. Talking about the waste stream segued seamlessly into a conversation about the garden and peeing in it. Jack mentioned that his droopy plants perked right up with a shot of his PT, though Jack feeds with a stronger solution, three to five parts pee to, pee to 10 parts water than I prefer, one or two parts pee to 10 of water. <clears throat> Oh yeah, I thought, I gotta get back on that. <laughs> now that I think of it, <clears throat> I stopped harvesting PT a few years back when I was living for the year with Stephanie and her family in New Jersey. We were sharing a community garden plot for which I had been collecting my pee, a fact I bet the other gardeners would not have loved. <laughs> All the same, I was diligent, and one day after a solo basketball workout on the crummy courts behind the Milford Public Library, I harvested into an empty Gatorade bottle, filling it up all the way with the warm golden elixir, capping it tight and putting it in the cup holder before, before going to pick up Stephanie's daughter, Georgia, from softball practice or camp or something. Boo! We were chatting and driving down Route 29 when I watched her spot the bottle, grab it, twist it open, and moving it toward her mouth, ask if she could have a sip. Friends, you may know that fully one-third of being an adult man in a girl's life is not to be perceived as, not to be, a pervert. Both of which boundaries I was very close to unintentionally crossing, simply by virtue of this child's cavalier disregard for my boundaries, which is my way of saying I am the one who needs your sympathy right now. In the single most athletic gesture of my adult life, <laughs> I removed the full and sort of warm vessel from Georgia's hand without spilling even a drop, recapping it, and placed it back in the cup holder without driving off the road, saying, you better not. <laughs> Had I been more prepared, I would have said something about a cold or mouth herpes, but instead we just drove the few miles home in weird, perverse silence. Okra. <laughs> and this is called pulling carrots. Um, today we pulled the carrots from the garden that Stephanie sowed back in March. She planted two kinds, a red kind shaped like a standard kind and a squat orange kind with French name, a kind I recall the packet calling a market variety, probably because like the red kind, it's an eye catcher and sweet, which I learned nibbling a couple of both kinds like Bugs Bunny as I pulled them. The word kind, meaning type or variety, which you have noticed I have used with some flourish, is among the delights, for it puts the kindness of carrots front and center in this, in this discussion, good for your eyes, yummy, etc. in addition to reminding us that kindness and kin have the same mother, maybe making those to whom we are kind our kin, to whom even those we might be, and that circle is big. These are kinds, I am thinking, as I snip the feathery green tops, making my way through the pile, 
holding the root in one hand, feeling the knobs and grains, the divots where they've grown against a rock or some critter nibbled, or the four or five of the red kind that have almost become two carrots, carrot legs in need of some petite pantaloons. The utterly forgettable magic of the carrot, which applies as well to the turnip and radish and potato and garlic and onion and ginger and turmeric and yam and sunchoke and shallots and salsify and maca and sweet potato, is that because much of the food resides under the ground, it probably had to be discovered, uncovered. And after the discovering and the uncovering, choosing which ones to replant and replant and replant and replant and replant and replant until there was the long red kind I'm brushing the soil from, until the squat kind piling up at the bottom of the basket. It was kindness. They are our family. Another subject. Let's try it. Let's try again. You said feet. <laughs> feet? Oh. <clears throat> feet, feet, feet. Um, I, I can kind of do that. I mean, it'd be really fun if every single time I could be like, got one about feet, bingo. Or maybe that wouldn't be that fun. I think this is more fun. <laughs> okay, I got one for you. Oh yeah, this is a good one. This is called, um, this is called House Party. Does anyone know that movie, remember that movie? Yeah, okay. <clears throat> House party. I referenced someone named um, 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 Linus Pauling. Do you all know that name, Linus Pauling? What's that? He did stuff. Yeah, he did vitamin stuff. Um, what's that? Stuff. Oh, pea stuff. Yeah, totally, totally. Yeah, I thought you said I thought you said pea stuff, like yeah. like me. <laughs> <laughs> I didn't even know. <laughs> um, yeah, so he, he was a, um, I forget the name of the vitamin uh, research that he was doing, but I'm referencing that in this. House Party. I'm reading Adam Kirsch's review of Ben Lerner's book, The Hatred of Poetry. It's evidently in the tradition of the many books that attempt to reveal the true reasons behind poetry's alleged plummet into disfavor. I was given the review, Xeroxed, by a guy named Milt who ran around the halls of Caltech as a kid and knew Linus Pauling, and I grilled him about that. I happened to be in the midst of a vitamin C detox, or I mean detoxing by way of consuming thousands of milligrams of vitamin C daily, which I hope isn't toxic. <laughs> the, the cold passed quick, FYI. Milt introduced me at the retirement community where I read poems today to about 40 folks, nearly all of them awake, and as lovely and engaged an audience as I've ever had. The place, like so many retirement communities, has gardens in the name. It shares that nomenclatural distinction with housing projects and some gardens. Milt had a theory, <coughs> Milt had a theory that the hatred of poetry had something to do with the New Yorker, which he thought was also killing it. Poetry, I mean. The New Yorker was killing poetry, he thought, but not the hatred of it, unfortunately. It was a hatred of poetry garden, Milt thought. I thought he was giving the New Yorker too much credit. 
But Milt's not the only person so opinioned about the New Yorker or the hatred of poetry or the garden of the hatred of poetry adjacent to the garden of the death of poetry, just beyond the garden of the uselessness of poetry. <laughs> Hence, Lerner's book about poetry or the hatred of it selling kind of good. But I don't actually want to prattle on about the hatred of poetry, about, as Kirsch concludes in his review, how we can, quote, rediscover what it once was and might be again. As there's already a fairly sturdy industry, commercial and anecdotal, devoted to this worry. I live in a Midwestern college town where once a month the line into the poetry slam at a bar actually wraps around the block. And inside, all variety of people share their poems to an audience of a couple hundred. And a few weeks back, I took a cab to Indy, and my driver told me that she reads her poems at various open mics two or three times a week. And last week, also in my town, the poet laureate Juan Felipe Herrera drew an audience of about 600 people. Not to mention, pretty much every wedding and funeral I've ever been to includes a poem, requires one. So truth be told, I give almost nary a shit about the hatred of poetry, <laughs> given the abundant and diverse and daily evidence to the contrary. Yesterday, I visited a class of about 25 students at Laverne University in California. I read a few poems, and we had an engaged and thoughtful discussion. And as we were heading out to get some food at a Greek place, a young person asked me if I knew the movie House Party. It's been a long time, I said, but yes. And if this person was white, I'd have been kind of nervous for what was coming next. You remind me so much of Kid from Kid and Play without the high top fade. But they weren't. And anyway, they weren't talking about me. They were talking about my poems, which they said reminded them of the dancing in the movie. Well, no fucking duh, this is the best review I will ever get. <laughs> which, if you don't understand the review or my love of it, and my great and abiding love of the literary critic who offered it, it's only because you probably never spent something like 40 hours a week mastering every variation of the kid and play kick step to Rob Bass and DJ Easy Rocks It Takes Two with your boys Theo, Maurice, and Harley. All of us getting synchronized in front of the big mirror in Maurice's apartment. His mother in the kitchen stirring sauce and yelling, Mowdy, when we practiced hard enough that the dishes started clanking in preparation for the ninth grade talent show, which didn't have a winner. I agree with the middle school pedagogy but did, in fact, have only one act after which the stage was rushed. <laughs> so the kick step was feet there. That was the kick step. Um, this is called um, The High Five from Strangers, Etc. The High Five from Strangers, Etc. Today, I was wandering the square of the small, so I have all these like long parentheticals in these pieces, and this one's kind of an extra long one, so I'll do like that so you can kind of get it. Um, today, I was wandering the square of the small Indiana town where I gave a poetry reading at the local college. A feature of the small town Midwest, a, a feature of the small town Midwest, a city hallish building in the center, always with some sad statue trumpeting one war or another, this one had a guy in one of those not very protective looking hats they then called a helmet during World War I. He's carrying, naturally, a gun. Jenna Osman's book, Public Figures, alerted me to the ubiquity of the gun, the weapon, in the hands of our statues. A delight I wish to now imagine and even impose, given as beneficent dictatorship, of one's own life anyway, is a delight. 
All new statues must have in their hands flowers, or shovels, or babies, or seedlings, or chinchillas. We could go on like this for a while. But never again, never ever, guns. I decree it, and also decree the removal of the already extant guns. Let the emptiness our war heroes carry be the metaphor for a while. As I was finishing circling the square, I passed a storefront garage with huge Make America Great Again signs. It was a foreign auto repair shop, and inside were mostly Toyotas and Hondas. I nestled into the coffee shop, took my notebooks out, and I was reading over these delights, transcribing them into my computer. Onto my computer? I gotta do my final edit. Is it onto? Into, okay. And while I was working, headphones on, swaying to the new De La Soul record, Delight, which deserves its own entry. I noticed a white girl, she looked 15, but could have been, I suppose, a college student, was standing next to me with her hand raised. I looked up, confused, pulled my headphones back, and she said, like a coach or something, working on your paper, good job to you, high five. And you better believe I high-fived that child <laughs> in her Def Leppard pre-ripped shirt and her itty-bitty Doc Martens. For I love, I delight in, unequivocally pleasant public physical interactions with strangers. What constitutes pleasant, it's no secret, is informed by my large-ish male and cisgender body, a body that is also largest, large-ish male, cisgender, and not white. In other words, the pleasant the delightful are not universal. We should all understand this by now. A few months ago, walking down the street in Umbertide in Italy, a trash truck pulled up beside me and the guy in the passenger seat yelled something I didn't understand. I said, como? The Spanish word for come again, which is a ridiculous thing to say because even if he had come again, I would not have understood him. He knew this, and hopping out of the trunk to dump, it, dump in a couple cans, he flexed his muscles, pointed at me, and smacked my biceps hard, twice. I loved him. <laughs> or when a waitress puts her hand on my shoulder, forget it if she calls me honey, baby even better. Or someone scooting by puts their hand on my back, the handshake, the hug, I love them both. Once I was getting on a plane and shuffling down the aisle, I saw, sitting at the front of coach, reading magazine, my great Uncle Earl. I got down on my knees and put my hand on his forearm and said, Uncle Earl, it's me, Ross. He looked at me kind of quizzically, as did the woman traveling with him who did not look one bit like my Aunt Sylvia, <laughs> which made me look back at my not Uncle Earl, who looked maybe like my Uncle Earl's second cousin 20 years ago. <laughs> And though it was benign and no one was hurt, it was a little weird. <laughs> and they looked confused. All the same, given his Uncle Earl died about six months later, I'm delighted I did get to see him and touch him lovingly about a thousand mile, miles away. Um, this one's called Nicknames. And, uh, Curtis Bauer, um, who's a dear friend of mine and a friend also of this place, uh, he shows up. <laughs> he shows up in this. His nickname is Boogie. And if I explain everything, I explain everything. Nicknames. I am writing in a notebook with the words, pay attention, 
on the front, which is a cousin to another notebook in my bag with the words, pay attention, motherfucker, <laughs> printed on a Chandler and Price letterpress that I co-own with my friend, which I have yet to see, for it is lodged in a print shop in Lubbock, Texas. My beloved co-owner pal, which makes him a kind of spouse, I suppose, who gifted me these delightful notebooks is named Boogie, or Boogs, and was so named by me, one of my greatest literary achievements. <laughs> Boogie, or Boogs, might not be the first name you'd assign to Boogie, or Boogs, for a number of reasons, perhaps the most significant of which is that he probably, he has definitely not spent a lot of time dancing. Boogie, which you might ascertain from his appearance, which would be a wrong thing to do, though you'd be right. This is one of the reasons Boogie, or Boogs, is such a great nickname. It's kind of a curveball that has, with much repetition, become utterly natural. And his Christian name, Curtis, has come to seem awkward and clunky, kind of Lutheran, kind of Kurt. It's a clothesline of a name, really, the football kind. Another reason I love this nickname, and have now come to love how much I love this nickname, is because Boogie doesn't know that every time I say his name, I am also invoking the great and similarly nicknamed L. Boogie, or Lauren Hill, whom I am guessing, wrongly, probably rightly, Boogie has never boogied to. Boogie calls me Salpicon, which he tells me means sizzle, which I think fits, though it would be a safe assumption, given my own delight, that the nickname Salpicon might afford Boogie some similarly pleasurable, ironic association, which I do not need to know about. I've shortened my nickname to Picon, whatever that means. Anyway, I love nicknames. They delight me. There are evidently people from whom nicknames are repelled like projectiles from Luke Cage's skin. Fried eggs to Teflon. My friend Patrick is one, though the simple Spanishification of his name, Patricio, time to time, among some of, some of us, is one that has endured, sort of, time to time. Drop the pa, jiggle the spelling, and it might be a good sticky name, Tricio one that in a generation or two might become associated incorrectly and beautiful and so correctly with something to do with trees. How delightful is that? I am a bit of a nickname magnet and have been assigned the following aliases. Bizquick, Biz, Rahim the Compassionate, Beef, Beefy, Big Mans, Bigs, Biggie, Big Little Big, Big Papa, The Big Gay, Bones, Baby Boy, Baby Gay, The Baby, Booger, Beast, Sammy, Saucy, Saucy Sauce, Saucy Pants, Dr. Sauce, Dr. Hot Sauce, Doc, The Doctor, Tall Lady, Tall Drink, Wave, Aros Con Pollo, Ross the Boss, The King of Applesauce, Roski, Snozzer, Six, Sace, Uncle, Daddy, and several others too lewd or private to share. <laughs> I don't know exactly what nicknames mean. Though a quick reading of mine and the abundance of the b sound, that babyest of sounds, makes me think it might be primal. I know that I rarely call the people I love by their names. I call them, if it's okay with them, by the name I have given them. I wonder if this means I think of all my beloveds as my children. That seems patronizing. <laughs> Especially because I mostly don't give them money. <laughs> but on the other hand, how lovely are my mothers, all my babies. Um, I want to read you this one about um, this tomato. <laughs> I haven't read this much. This is called Annoyed No More. It's not about a tomato. I don't think. 
annoyed no more. At the Afga Afghan restaurant today, I identified in myself a burbling in my reservoir of annoyance when I realized that people were going around the buffet in the wrong direction, <laughs> which was, the annoyance felt, a kind of wretched incivility, a sign of our imminent plummet into lawlessness and misery. The delight is that I can identify that annoyance quickly now and poke a finger in its ribs. I've shaken up the metaphor. You're right, how annoying. And so hopped into line with the other deviants, and somehow we all got our food just fine. Same when Stephanie doesn't turn on the light over the stove to cook, or leaves the light in her bathroom on, or leaves cabinet or closet doors wide open, or doesn't tighten the lids all the way, all of which the annoyance regards as, if not an obvious sign of sociopathy, indication of some genuine sketchiness, a problem. But somehow no one ever dies of these things, or is even hurt. Aside from my sad little annoyance monster, who, for the record, never smiles and always wears a crooked bow tie. It is beneath your dignity to mention that the annoyance always originates in the annoyed, which is why I have personified it and housed that personification in the body. Maybe it's an unacknowledged lack of control feeling that stokes it. Maybe it's dehydration or hunger or sleepiness, poor baby. The second delight is the teaching I received from Stephanie's then 15-year-old daughter, Georgia, and her pal who were complaining about something, probably someone, being annoying. And when I asked what was annoying about the person, they said, it's just annoying. And when I said, well, do you know why it was annoying? They said, because it was annoying. <laughs> and when I said, annoyingly, I get that, but what about their behavior made it annoy you? They yelled, throwing gummy bears at me, the annoyingness. <laughs> this is called uh, Toto. You know that band, Toto? <laughs> yeah. They're good. <laughs> so, uh, um, me and my friend Pat, we were like on a on a um, run of watching like '80s kind of pop music videos, and we got onto Rosanna. Do you know how that one goes? No, okay. It's a good one. You learn it. We'll come back tomorrow. And <laughs> Toto. If there was ever unequivocal almost blinding evidence, a kind of opposite evidence, of the nearly requisite attractiveness of contemporary popular musicians, by which I'm saying if you're not considered hot, get out of the game, it is the band, the very good band I will add, Toto, whose videos we went on a little jag of, starting of course with Rosanna. We got around to that pre-post-colonial hit, Africa, which along with things like the white shadow slides elegantly into the aesthetic category of kind of racist, but Watching the video, it takes you all of 10 seconds to realize you are in the presence of some very average-looking gentlemen. <laughs> and if you're like me and corrupted just enough by our era to think good music mostly emits from conventionally or boringly attractive people, you'll be waiting for the other, the hunky other lead singer or the hottie other bassist, neither of whom you will find, <laughs> for they are not there and needn't be in that era before the visual market was what it is, before your looks mattered more than your musicianship. The youngest of you scarcely believed there was such a time. Much the way Jesus made a paste of spit and mud with which to remove the scales from the blind man's eyes, I offer you the We Are the World video. The Toto Boys fashion sense reminds me of the guys I grew up around, a touch nervously, from Pendell and Parkland, who were called heads, short for motorheads, 
shorthand for burnouts. In fact, I su that probably means they smoke a little pot. <laughs> Isn't that funny? In fact, I swear the guy with the great voice and a rambunctious mustache who in this video belts his pretty tenor at Rosanna strutting on the other side of the fence. I am happy to report that they were mostly in the cage, not her, which did not preclude them from exiting the cage to singingly stalk her, kind of sexist, but used to sit in the back of our bus writing ACDC and Motley Crue on the green vinyl seats with his pencil eraser in between bouts of hair care administered with a comb slid from his back pocket. All of this might sound like a lament, but it's just an observation. No, it's not. <laughs> it's a lament. I was recently flipping through the New York Times style magazine, looking at the ads for what I assume are highly coveted brand name goods, studying the waifish, despondent looking children being used to hawk those goods. Why are they called goods? I thought, we are so fucked. Um, this is called tomato, if I can find it, it's called, tom oh, that's a good one. I might do this one. You know, it's kind of fun when you're, you have these things and you kind of like them, you know, and it feels kind of lucky to feel like, oh, I like these. I don't know if you feel the same way, but <laughs> at least I do. <laughs> this is called tomato on board. Well, you don't know until you carry a tomato seedling through the airport and onto a plane is that carrying a tomato seedling through the airport and onto a plane will make people smile at you almost like you're carrying a baby, a quiet baby. I did not know this until today, carrying my little tomato, about three or four inches high in its four-inch plastic starter pot, which my friend Michael gave to me, smirking about how I was going to get it home. Something about this at first felt naughty not comparing a tomato to a baby, but carrying the tomato onto the plane. And so I slid the thing into my bag while going through security, which made them pull the bag for inspection. <laughs> when the security guy saw it was a tomato, he smiled and said, I don't know how to check that. <laughs> Have a good day. But I quickly realized that one of its stems, which I almost wrote as arms, was broken from the jostling, and it only had four of them. So I decided I'd better just carry it out in the open and the shower of love began. It was a shower of love I also felt while carrying a bouquet of lilies through the streets of Rome last summer. People, maybe women especially, maybe women my age-ish and older especially, smiling with approval. A woman in a house dress beating out a rug on a balcony shouted, bravo! <laughs> An older couple holding hands smiled at me and pulled into each other, knitting their fingers together. My showers might have been disappointed to know I was not giving the lilies to a sweetheart, but to my pals, Damiano and Moira, who had translated a few of my poems into Italian and were so kind as to let me stay at their place a couple nights while I was passing through. On the way to the vegetarian restaurant Damiano's ex-wife owns with her partner, we walked by what I'm pretty sure Damiano said was the biggest redbud tree in the world. It stretched about 50 yards, lounging periodically onto the mossy earth, its beautiful black bark glistened by the streetlights though translation is an act of love, so my showers needn't be disappointed at all. Before boarding the final leg of my flight, one of the workers said, nice tomato, which I don't think was a come on. 
And the flight attendant asked about the tomato at least five times, not an exaggeration, every time calling it my tomato. Where's my tomato? How's my tomato? You didn't lose my tomato, did you? She even directed me to an open seat in the exit row. Why don't you guys go sit there and stretch out? I gathered my things and set the little guy in the window seat so she could look out. When I got my water, I poured some into the little guy's soil. When we got bumpy, I put my hand on the little guy's container, careful not to snap another arm off. And when we landed and the pilot put the brakes on hard, my arm reflexively went across the seat, holding the little guy in place, the way my dad's arm would when he had to brake hard in that car without seatbelts to speak of, in one of my very favorite gestures in the Encyclopedia of Human Gestures. Thank you.